The St. Louis Cardinals win the World Series in a dramatic seventh game. In the outfield, Lonnie Smith. At first base, Keith Hernandez. On the mound, the winning pitcher, Joaquin Andahar. All three players taking cocaine throughout that season, hiding in a hotel room, fined from drug dealers. Hernandez began using cocaine in 1980. He played one game that first year under the influence of cocaine, taking the drug so often he can't remember which game it was. All this came out this week in testimony in a Pittsburgh courtroom in the first trial in baseball's cocaine scandal. Hernandez had to miss part of the New York Mets pennant race to testify. Lonnie Smith sat up two games in the Kansas City Royals race in the American League West. Enos Cabell had to leave the Los Angeles Dodgers to testify. He will be back here Monday. So will Lee Lacey of Baltimore, still awaiting his turn on the witness stand. The prosecution has given all of them immunity to testify in the trial of this former cook for the Philadelphia Phillies, Curtis Strong. Fernandez, Smith, and Cabell all said they bought cocaine from Strong. The defense tried to discredit that testimony. And as a result of this sickness, they have become junkies. And as a result of their being junkies, they are prone to lie. But the testimony had the cold and chilling sound of sad truth. Hernandez told how for three and a half years he snorted cocaine. It gives you a feeling of being up and on top of the world. Honestly, it was probably a demon in me, an insatiable urge. I woke up one morning with my nose bleeding and had the shakes. In my opinion, it could be the devil on this earth. Smith said he stopped in 1983 when he took so much cocaine in one night, he was so jittery he couldn't play. The Cardinal sent him to a hospital for treatment. Hernandez admitted he ignored a warning from Cardinals manager Whitey Herzog to come forward. He said he stopped when Smith came close to collapse. But St. Louis traded him the next week to the Mets anyway. Cabal said he used cocaine for six years, but began tapering off in Detroit when manager Sparky Anderson warned him. Cabell said, I was getting older and had too much to lose. Hernandez said that in 1980, what he calls baseball's romance year with cocaine, he thinks as many as 40% of all the major leaguers may have been taking the drug. But he said baseball began to kick its drug habit in 1983 when players saw Kansas City Royals like Willie Wilson go to jail for cocaine use. It will be another week or so before the jury decides Strong's fate, but for baseball, the verdict is already bad. The prosecution plans to call half a dozen more ball players to testify about their cocaine use next week. James Polk, NBC News, Pittsburgh. Everybody's doing cocaine. Baseball players have to go in front of a grand jury and say, yeah, I did cocaine. Can you blame me? It's a slow goddamn game. Come on, Jack. I'm standing out in left field for seven innings. There's a white line going all the way down the home plate. Yeah. I see the guy putting it out going, <laughs> And that damn organ music. The third base coach doing, they sit all the time. He does this, I don't know whether to slide or do a line, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> People sliding in the home plate head first. Yeah, you're out. Doesn't matter, baby, I'm up now. And John Wetland one more time set. And here comes a 2-2 pitch to Edgar Martinez down. A fastball, swung on, hit the deep to the field. Bernie Wins goes back and... 
the Robinson Hearing Studio Complex and straight out of God's country, Holly's Island, South Carolina, the List Talk Baseball Podcast Network proudly presents Backward K Pod. And now, here's the host of the show, Jake Robinson. Good moment, baseball universe. What is up? It's your boy, half man, half podcast machine, Jake the Snake Robinson from the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network, back in the Captain Kirk chair, shields down, photons up, prepare to engage on this week's edition of Backwards K-Pod, where we collect ballplayers and their stories. I want to welcome all of you in as this train continues to roll on. If you're new here, check it out. Hit that follow and subscribe icon. Backwards K-Pod is available on all podcast platforms, wherever you listen to your pods, or you can check out the archives at diamondsnakejake.podbean.com. If you're an Apple or Spotify user uh, for your pods, you can hook a brother out, rate and review me as you see fit. I ain't skirt. I prefer to keep this dope content free, so you know, in today's busted-ass economy, I wouldn't dare ask my awesome audience to send me your hard-earned money. Uh, no Patreon or crowdsourcing. This show started out as a passion project. Honestly, I just love talking baseball. I, I wish I had this technology as a kid. I would have been a millionaire by my 10th birthday. I promise you. Uh, the truth is, though, I'm a guy in my back nine. And one day, uh, this is going to be all over. I'm singularly focused on getting as many shows out there as I possibly can before it's ding-ding. Baseball has been a blessing in my life. I would imagine most of you feel the same way I do. Uh, some of you may be here to reconnect with the game. Some of you may just, you know, still love the game and you're, you're winning all the way. Some of you may be here because you need a topic for a paper. I mean, whatever the reason is. First of all, thank you again. Secondly... Like I was saying, baseball is my life. The, the sport has given me clarity and purpose in life. And I have a compelling urge to pay it back. My voice is probably the one thing I can use to pay it back. I mean, you know, look, my, my point is, I wouldn't care if my audience was only Cecil in Tampa, Florida, and Leo in Down Under, Australia. I would still do this show. I've communicated often with Leo and Cecil. Both are loyal listeners. They're both worth it. And the truth is... You are worth it as well. Um, my point is, I, I don't need to dig nickel and dime you to make this show work. I just need you to subscribe, share, download, rate, and review. And as long as I continue to see growth, and Leo and Cecil are still interested, I'll keep putting out that free smoke. Uh, you can find the show on Twitter at backwards underscore K underscore podcast, or the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network group page on Facebook. I am committed to this podcast podcast until my bloody demise. <laughs> I mean, I will leave my voice behind for all the true seam heads. So, who's coming with me? Uh, opening day is just around the corner. I hope you guys remember who was here for you when the baseball empire was in peril. And stick around this summer for some really, really great topics I have on tap. Okay, enough. Let's get down to why we are here at Backwards K-Pod, where we collect ballplayers. And their stories. This week, we will be taking a look at, well, pretty much the precursor to the steroid scandal scandal of the late 90s and early 2000s, the Pittsburgh Drug Tiles of 1985. And 
during the late 70s, cocaine hit the scene with a vengeance. It began in the nightclubs and it was generally, generally considered as the drug of choice amongst the elite or those who wanted to portray the image of elite. And by the time the 80s was in full swing, cocaine was everywhere. It really wasn't considered a big deal to walk into your local watering hole and see a couple of uh, rails out on the bar. And even a teenager such as myself at the time, I had easy access to the drug as there really wasn't this stigma attached to it. And that perception, it began to change due to two major sports stories that broke in 1985 and 1986. The first was the Pittsburgh drug trials, and the second was the tragic death of University of Maryland star forward Len Bias after overdosing on cocaine. The Pittsburgh drug trials was not the first cocaine scandal in baseball. Three years earlier, the Kansas City Royals were the focus of an investigation, which resulted in three-year prison terms for Vida Blue, Willie Mays Akins, Jerry Martin, and Willie Wilson. But the Pittsburgh drug trials highlighted the depth of cocaine use and abuse in the major leagues. And quite honestly, it was also a reflection of American society. Now, the genesis of the initial investigation... It began around uh, Pirates pitcher Rod Scurry. And the Southpaw was a solid piece of the Buccos bowling, joining the team after the Pittsburgh Championship season of 1979. Scurry was described as a quiet introvert who never seemed comfortable in his own skin when he wasn't high on the dust. And he would go on to form a close relationship with Yogi Berra's son, Dale, and Kevin Koch, who was the man inside the Pittsburgh Parrot mascot costume. The common denominator in the friendship was a love for cocaine. It was Kevin Koch, uh, the parrot, who would be the liaison, so to say, uh, between the players and his good friend Dale Schiffman. Uh, Dale Schiffman was a freelance photographer who lived in Pittsburgh, and Koch would place the players' orders for cocaine with Schiffman, who would then reach out to his connections and secure the players their drugs. And in retrospect, Schiffman would say on many occasions that he didn't really look at himself as a cocaine dealer. He just looked at himself as a person who had rich friends who played baseball, looking to have some fun, and he never once made any money from the deals. He got a lot of coke, you know, free coke out of the deal, but he never really made any money. It wasn't about making money for him. And in the beginning, it was fun. Fast living, hot chicks, always a party. But Scurry developed a nasty habit, and, and things began to change. Uh, Schiffman would speak of how things were fun in the beginning, but by the end, he would have the unenviable task of babysitting Scurry because his behavior had just become so, let's call it, inconsistent. And it got so bad for the left-handed hurler that one night in San Diego, after walking two batters on eight pitches, he retired to his hotel room, and after snorting nearly an eight ball by himself, Scurry began to have uh, terrifying hallucinations. He was convinced that snakes were inside of his TV. <laughs> 
ready to attack him. And soon, tribal screaming and noises would emanate from that room. When hotel security got to the room, they were shocked to see the player had torn apart his room, including the TV. And fortunately for Scurry, Buck's manager, Chuck Tanner, talked to the, uh, the hotel manager into not calling the police, and he promised that Scurry would take care of the cost of damages. The next day, uh, Tanner informed Scurry that he was done babysitting him and making excuses for him. He informed the pitcher that he had to check into a rehab or the team was going to release him. And the only thing that Scurry loved as much as cocaine was playing baseball, so he checked himself into a clinic thinking maybe all this could be put behind him. But the FBI had other plans, though, as they were basically waiting for the pitcher to complete his rehab. And upon Scurry's release, the Fed showed up at his house to ask questions. Uh, there were rumors running around that cocaine use was big in the majors, and quite frankly, they wanted to know all about it. So, Scurry, well, he sang like a background singer for Bruce Springsteen. He spilled the beans on his relationship with Barra and the parent mascot, Kevin Coke. I mean, it's just so funny that that guy's name is Kevin Coke, right? It, it, it takes me back to Harlem Nights when the, when the dude says, uh, just because your last name's heroin doesn't mean you have to sell heroin. You know, it's like his name is Kevin Coke. It's so crazy. And Scurry said on more than one occasion, he brought cocaine off the parrot in the middle of a game in the clubhouse. And he had even left the stadium to cop during games as he admitted his addiction had rendered him out of control. He dived at the coke parrot and teammate Dale Barra, who, quite frankly, was immersed in his own addiction nightmare at the time. And to blow the whole wide case wide open, Scurry revealed a whole network of drug dealers he used on the road uh, who not only serviced him, but many other National League players. And the parrot would wind up ratting on his good friend, Dale Schiffman, whom I told you about. So, the more and more the FBI pressed, the more layers of that onion became exposed. Slowly but surely, the feds were beginning to realize the true scope of this growing scandal. Though drug use was prevalent in the Pirates Clubhouse, there was a uh, growing evidence that pointed to many clubhouses in Major League Baseball living the cocaine romance of the early ostentatious 80s. Milwaukee, Baltimore, Kansas City, Philadelphia in particular came under scrutiny and investigation. And filthy, the feds began looking at caterer Curtis Strong. And by now... The investigation was beginning to explode as names of users and dealers were being used as bargaining chips for immunity. Curtis Strong, a self-professed baseball junkie, he was in the business of feeding the Phillies with his catering service. In time, uh, Strong befriended these players that he looked up to. And at some point, someone asked him if he could get some coke, and he said, sure. He was never a drug dealer who profited off of the cocaine. Like Dale Shiffman, he was just a crazy baseball fan, giving the ballplayers what they asked for. Unlike Shiffman, I'm not even sure Strong was even a cocaine user. Nowhere in my research could I find evidence of him using cocaine. 
St. Louis Cardinal outfielder Lonnie Smith's name was mentioned as a buyer from Curtis Strong while playing road games in Filthy. And Cards manager Whitey Ford warned Lonnie that he was under investigation by the FBI. Well, Lonnie would bat lead off in the trial before a federal grand jury on September 5th, 1985. He was the first of what would be seven players questioned in the trial. Lonnie, Keith Hernandez, Edith Cabell, Dale Barrett, Dave Parker, Jeff Leonard, and the retired former pirate John Milner would take the next stand in exchange for immunity. And in a four-hour deposition, Smith described meeting Strong through former Phillies teammate Dick Davis. He would go on to naming Davis, Gary Matthews, Dickie Knowles, Keith Hernandez, and Joaquin Andujar as players that he had done coke with. And some of the most explosive testimony of the trial, it actually involved amphetamines. Daryl Barra said under oath that he had received amphetamines from teammates Bill Madlock and Hall of Famer Willie Stargell. John Milner testified that not only did he get greetings from Willie Mays, but the Say Hey Kid had a red juice concoction of amphetamines that was dissolved into liquid form. He also admitted to buying two grams of cocaine for $200 in the stalls of a Three Rivers bathroom during a game. The Pittsburgh drug trials was the culmination of a season in sharp contrast of the good and bad of professional baseball. For example, uh, on the same day, Pete Rose became the hit king, surpassing Ty Cobb's record for base hits. Dale Barra was on the stand talking about amphetamines. During the federal grand jury uh, deposition, Jim Raines admitted to not only doing coke during games, but he would actually keep his vials of soda in his back pocket. Raines never felt like it adversely affected his game, but he did say he began sliding headfirst into bases so as not to bust the vials going feet first in his back pocket. Dave Parker was one of the most honest about his cocaine use. He admitted he was a user and that he had a lot of fun doing it. However, the last couple of years, he felt like his game had declined a little bit because of his cocaine use, and the Pirates were quick to use that. Uh, they were quick to use the Cobra's words against him as they would actually sue him for breach of contract, and they sent him packing to the Cincinnati Reds. Keith Hernandez, the 1979 NLMVP, he took the stand, and he described waking up one morning with, uh, the shakes and a bloody nose saying he had lost more than 10 pounds due to the use of cocaine. He called cocaine the devil of the earth and admitted to being a user for three and a half years. He had met, estimated that 40% of, the, of Major League Baseball was using cocaine, but he would later walk that estimate back. Dale Shipman, however, he claimed that he had 17 players on the Pirates' 25-man roster placing orders through the parrot at the time in recent interviews. The fans and the media, they began asking questions. How could owners and front office types not know about this behavior if it's so fucking rampant? And if baseball was truly intent on addressing the drug problem you know, in their sport, why were amphetamines beyond the scope of their efforts? Why were they so, you know, prevalent in all these ballparks and clubhouses? 
And every night there was uh, Commissioner Peter Uberoff declaring war on drugs and baseball. We're going to be vigilant and rid this beautiful game of raw, rickety, raw, raw, raw. Dude, I need a word you said. We'll, we'll come back to that grandstanding dope in a second. Now, all the players who took the stand were granted immunity, and they recounted, recounted their various meetings with Curtis Strong, the caterer from Philly. According to court records, the players would often meet Strong in a hotel room. The deals were usually made over the phone, and even more shockingly, the clubhouse phone was often the source. Among the players alleged by these witnesses as cocaine users were Rod Scurry, Steve Howe, Lee Lacey, Tim Raines, Daryl Thomas, Dusty Baker, Manny Sarmiento, and Eddie Solomon. And again, the 1985 MLB season, it highlighted the, what I like to call the residuals of good and bad in the sport. Uh, Nolan Bryan notched his 4,000 strikeout. Both Tom Seaver and Phil Negro, they won their 300th games. But on the flip side, you had ace pitcher Mike Norris arrested in Northern California for possession of cocaine. Claudel Washington, Daryl Scanners, Alan Wiggins, Steve Howe, and, you know, of course, Scurry. They, they all took turns in the headlines thanks to their issues with drugs during the season. Many of the press and the average working stiff they were beginning to, beginning to wonder aloud, why are baseball players getting immunity while fans who just wanted to hang with pro baseball players were facing serious uh, criminal charges and jail time? And Curtis Strong's defensive attorney, Adam O. Renfro, he asked the same questions in court and in front of microphones and television cameras in front of that courthouse in western Pennsylvania. And in the beginning of the show, you, you, you heard his voice basically calling the baseball players junkies and liars, which, you, you know, it's debatable. One, but one thing's for sure, none of the people who sold coke to these players were like these big-time Miami Vice drug, drug lords. Now I'm trying to keep with the times here. And it was not lost on many following this case that it was... Be- beginning to look like the big multi-millionaire pro athlete versus small-time local fans looking to hang with baseball players and service their desires. It was Pittsburgh-based attorney J. Allen Johnson whose investigation, which would eventually lead to the indictment and prosecution of Curtis Strong, Dale Schiffman, five other Pennsylvania men on various cocaine charges, he decided not to put the players on trial rather than the dealers. And years later, he would explain that he never wanted the, the players to be granted immunity, but the alternative was to do nothing. Sounds kind of familiar with the steroid scandal, right? The following fans were convicted and jailed for selling cocaine to baseball players. Shelby Greer on seven criminal counts. Dale Schiffman, 20 criminal counts, sentenced to 11 years, released to 24 months. Kevin Connolly pled guilty to dealing cocaine. Sentenced uh, 2 to 5, he was out in 2. Thomas P. Balzer, he pled guilty, served 18 months. Jeffrey Moscow, uh, Moscow, 3 counts, served 18 months. And the media would go on to dub them as the Cocaine 7. 
the parrot, Kevin Koch, he, he was the rat. He got off scot-free. Dale Schiffman, who has devoted his life to Christ and has reinvented himself in Ohio these days, he would go on to forgive the rat. Ironically, within a year after the trial, the defense attorney, Adam O. Renfro, was sentenced to five years in prison, and he was also disbarred of his law practice on, on charges of bribery, of a state witness, and, obstruct, and obstruction charges. And he would admit that he himself had a 10-year cocaine addiction. So I guess when you hear him say addicts lie, well, I, he would know, right? Two weeks before the grand jury handed down the indictments of the Cocaine 7, Commissioner Uberoff announced mandatory drug testing in the minors and for MLB owners, executives, field managers, and umpires. He knew he couldn't use it to implement it to the players because of that you know, pesky CBA. And at that time, the world's most powerful workers' union would tell him to go fuck himself. Uh, behind the scenes, he was trying to talk the union into random testing program. He also believed that <laughs> Latin America was the key to baseball's cocaine problem. Trying to extend testing into winter leagues. And he told the New York Times that there are places where people look the other way. <laughs> if that ain't the pot calling the kettle black. Yeah, Dick. Er, Peter. It's called the United States of America. It's called Major League Baseball. They knew what was going on. They looked the other way. Clean your own fucking house first. And the commissioner was just trying to have his cake and eat it too, which I hear is a bad thing. I never understood that. Look, if I can't have the goddamn cake and eat it, then I don't even want the cake. Man, I'm hungry. I digress. Where was I? I had a point here. I know I had a point. Commissioner, take. Ah, yes. On on one hand, he's, uh, you know, he's Superman, war on drugs guy. You know, he's rough. He's tough. He's going to clean the sport up, and we will never have another drug scandal again. Yay! But on the other hand, it's a whole lot of mealy mouth bullshit. As slowly but surely, Peter begins to realize that he really has no power to clean up his own pool house, let alone baseball. On February 28th, the commissioner announced detailed punishments that divided the 21 players on record into three categories. Group 1, uh, Andujar, Barra, Cabell, Hernandez, Leonard, Parker, and Smith. They each received one-year suspension without pay unless the player agreed to donate 10% of his 1986 salary to a drug abuse program or facility, as well as perform the 100 hours of drug-related community service for the next two years. And they would also participate in random drug testing for the rest of their careers. Group 2 consisted of four players, Al Holland, Lee Lacey, Larry Sorensen, and Claudel Washington. They were suspended from playing for 60 days unless they agreed to donate 5% of their base salary and they had to contribute uh, 50 hours of drug-related community service. 
Now, 10 other players were named, but not suspended or punished. They were, however, subject to random drug testing for the rest of their careers. Those players were Dusty Baker, Vida Blue, Gary Matthews, Dickie Knowles, Tim Raines, Manny Sarmiento, Daryl Sconyers, Rod Sturry, Daryl Thomas, and Alan Wiggins. And some of these players would go on to have horrific, tragic endings. Alan Wiggins died at 33 years old in 1991 from complications from HIV, which he contracted while sharing needles during his drug use. Rod Scurry died of cocaine-related heart attack at the age of 36 in 1992. Larry Sorsen, after his sixth drunk driving conviction, spent two years in prison in 2005. Willie Mays Aiken, he spent 20 years in prison. And for some of them, it was really, really bad. Some of these players rebounded quite well. Tim Raines went on to become arguably the second greatest leadoff hitter in baseball history. Eventually making it to, to the uh, Hall of Fame in 2017. Tim Raines, final stat line. Let's take a look at him. 69.4 wins above replacement. 2,502 games. 1,571 runs. 2,605 hits. Uh, 170 home runs. 980 RBI. 808 stolen bases. And a 294, 385, 425 slash in a 123 OPS plus. Lonnie Smith, he'd go on to sign with the Braves and win Comeback Player of the Year in 1989. Dave Parker would be sued out of his contract with the Pirates, but he would go on to a stellar career going into Cincinnati, appeared in All-Star Games in 1985 and 1986. Keith Hernandez would move on to the Mets, win a world championship, finish with 11 gold gloves, a 296, 384, 436 slash, and a 128 OPS plus. It, it is interesting to note, in my mind, that both Parker and Hernandez are about as good a non-steroid baseball player as you can possibly be without being in the Hall of Fame. And there is this pervading thought that the Pittsburgh drug tiles, it's pretty much killed their shots. In 1985, it seemed that the league was poised to implement drug testing policy for their players. And obviously that didn't happen because and because of that inaction, the steroid era came along. And this is what makes this story still relevant to today. Uh, baseball's drug culture has grown into what it is today because people, presumably good people, Look the other way or simply lied about its existence. For years, we've heard commentators and fans bemoaning baseball and her steroid sins as if the game was some bastion of virginity and cleanliness before steroids. It was not. People who tell you it was, they're full of shit and they don't know what they speak of. Doc Ellis, in his documentary, a documentary, a <laughs> great name. He tells the viewers he never played a major league game in his life where he wasn't high on something. And there are many parallels between the drug trials and the steroid era ball. 
Both times, the players' unions were enablers. Uh, instead of doing the right thing and getting testing and all this thing going, nope, 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 not going to do it, uh, can't do it, CBA, can't do it, it's an invasion of our privacy. So the players' union, in both circumstances, were enablers. Both times, there was no real punishment handed down. I mean, yet you, you can face a suspension or... You know, you can give us some money and spend some time in class and all. Uh, you know, both had impacts on who makes the Hall of Fame and who does not. Both times, the commissioner proved that he really has no real power to do anything about it. And last but not least, both scandals had a negative impact on the national love of the game. And I'm a true history buff. I love it. But I, and I always say, those who forget history are doomed to repeat it. And Major League Baseball somehow forgot the Pittsburgh drug trials, you know, in like a 15-year span. And by doing so, they opened the door to steroids. And I think I'm going to end it here, folks. I hope you enjoyed today's show. Please remember... Uh, you know, spread the word about Backwards K. Pound those subscribe links. There's a lot of research you can use to learn more about the Pittsburgh drug trials. A lot of books and YouTube. I noticed there was a 3030 by ESPN on it. And honestly, I didn't know there was. I try to stay away from topics uh, that are... 30-30 already. I, I don't want to watch those things and let it, you know, uh, have an impact on what, you know, my interpretation of the story is. So I try to stay away from those. But, I, you know, I didn't realize it was a 30-30. You might want to check that out. Uh, I highly recommend uh, the Doc Ellis movie. It's called No-No, a documentary. And it's not really about the drug trials, but Ellis gives a candid account about his drug use during the 70s while pitching in Pittsburgh. And he also claims to have been tripping on a uh, window pane blotter when he knew hit the Padres. Also, I did a one-on-one -on -one interview with Willie Mays Akins about a year and a half ago. And we did. We dug into the trials quite a bit. You can find that interview on the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network YouTube page. Or, you know, look, check me out on the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network Facebook group page. Or check my webpage, diamondsnakejake.podbean.com. Next week, we are going to examine one of the greatest baseball shows of all time. This Week in Baseball. How about that? But hey, that's another story for another pod. Parents, if you see your kid sitting on the couch, looking bored. Spring is here. By all means, take him or her outside and play a game of catch. Thank you all for coming out. God bless and win the day.